Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Cleaving of Christendom, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the second millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkampf, a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, is the creator and presenter of EPIC, A Journey Through Church History, a 20-part adult faith formation study on the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, available from Ascension Press. More information about EPIC can be found at www.catholictimeline.com. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve used in his series is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. Okay, we'll begin in prayer. If you could please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. How many of you believe that adult education is important in the Catholic Church? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you know a Catholic that is not here tonight? Okay. How many of you invited somebody to come tonight? Okay, that's better than I had expected, but it's not good enough because I want to see every single hand in the room go up. I don't care if you have to invite the guy at the gas station, okay? Because we have to be willing to share the news of the resurrection with people that are, that are say, borderline Catholics, that are non-Catholics, and yes, even the grocery store lady, the guy at Costco, you wouldn't believe how many conversations I get in with people as I'm putting the wine for our events on the thing, wow, you're having a big party. So, oh, we're having a Bible study. And uh, <laughs> that always gets them going. So you can always find a way to talk to people. Please welcome back Steve Weinkamp. All right. Thank you, Sabatino. How are, how are we doing tonight? Are we doing all right? Yes? Excellent. All right. Well, I have with me two uh, new helpers th this evening. My wife and my youngest son, Martin, couldn't be here tonight because they're not feeling uh, very well because we have some kind of illness going through the family. So uh, and, and indulge me tonight. I'm not feeling exactly 100% myself, but, uh, but we'll, the show must go on, and we will tell the story of the church no matter what. But in the back is my, uh, my eldest daughter, Madison. Madison, wave. Hi. Yeah. 
And then next to her is my oldest son, Maximilian. So he's helping as well. And you all know Therese, the faithful uh, child who's been here every week. She just really loves this stuff, right, Therese? Yep, excellent. <laughs> Great. Okay, so let's go ahead and get right in. Last week we were talking about, in our time period, we talk, covered two time periods last week, actually. Weak leaders in schism, where we looked at where the papacy had moved its residents from Rome to Avignon in the south of France. We saw how that created a problem and that people began to view the papacy differently and see maybe the pope as a puppet of the French king, although many of the popes who lived in Avignon for that 70-year period of time were less, they didn't act always as puppets of the French king. But that's how people began, began to see the papacy, so a weakened respect for the papacy. And then we saw how the papacy came back as a result of the great actions of, of uh, or the actions of the great St. Catherine of Siena. So the Pope comes back to Rome, but then soon after that, we have that kind of crazy time period or that crazy event in church history where we had the great Western schism, where there were at one time three different men claiming to be Pope, and that really caused massive confusion in Christendom because you had different countries siding with different claimants. Uh, and it really caused a lot of chaos and, and whatnot. So, again, another weakening of the papacy and a weakening of respect for the papacy. And then we see that all kind of flow over then into what comes forth in the 16th century, which is what we covered last week, the Protestant Revolution. So that time period, weak leaders and schism, really sets the stage for what happens in the 16th century with Luther, who we looked at, looked at extensively last week, and also Calvin. So tonight we're going to continue our story in the time period of protesters and defenders, and we're going to pick up the story here with what happens in England at the time. It's a story that most of us are very familiar with, but it's a story that we need to just review and understand uh, because it's very important for the life of the church. So our king here in England at the time, in the uh, middle part of the 16th century, is Henry VIII. And as we all know, Henry VIII was married to Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain. And she had been married to uh, Henry's brother, Arthur, for a brief period of time. Arthur Tudor, she was married to him for about four months. She maintained throughout her life that that marriage was never actually truly a marriage because it was never consummated. In the eyes of the church, for a marriage to be valid, that fundamental act has to take place. Now, in her relationship with Henry, she did have one child, Mary, a daughter, Mary Tudor, who will come to play a very important role in the story of the church in a moment. We'll talk about that. Now, Henry, actually, for the first ten years of his marriage to uh, Catherine, was very faithful to her. But after about ten years, his eyes began to wander around the, the uh, royal court, and he first settled his eyes in the, in the year 1521 on a woman by the name of Mary Boleyn. And so he had a little uh, adventure with Mary Boleyn for a number of years, and then in 1526 he began to set his eyes on Mary's sister, Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn was very different from many of uh, Henry's other mistresses because Anne wanted to be queen. Anne was just not content to be a mistress of the king. She wanted to be queen, and she wanted the king to get rid of Catherine and declare her queen and to recognize obviously any children that might come forth from their relationship and she completely unlike other mistresses she completely controlled henry we have writings from foreign diplomats that are at the royal court in england during this time who write letters back to their sovereigns talking about how anne just completely has henry wrapped around her thumb and anything she wants and anything that she desires she gets him to do and he was just completely mesmerized and controlled by her so in the year 1527 henry decides to meet with cardinal wosley 
And Cardinal Wolseley is a very important figure in, in the church's history here in England at this time. Wolseley was, he held many different positions. He held secular positions as well as uh, church positions in England. He was the Lord Chancellor of England, which was a secular position. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is obviously a church position. And he was also the papal legate. So he was the Pope's representative in England as well. A very influential man holding these temporal positions as well as um, spiritual positions. So Henry goes and meets with Cardinal Wolseley and says, I want an annulment from Catherine. I want the Pope to declare my marriage to Catherine to be null and void. And so Wolseley says, well, you know, I'm the Pope's representative and I have a pretty good relationship with Clement VII. I think this should be a pretty easy thing. I'll send some representatives to Rome and we'll get this all figured out and it won't be that big of a deal. At least that's what he promised Henry. So the, the English representatives go down and they meet with Clement VII in Rome uh, in the summer of 1527. Now, one thing happens, it's very, I don't have time to get into it, unfortunately, but it has a part to play in this story. And in the year 1527, in the summer, the, the city of Rome was sacked by the imperial troops of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Most of them were German Lutheran troops. There's all kinds of political reasons why these imperial troops were even down in Italy in the first place and why they sacked the city. But they sacked the city and they were rampaging throughout the city. The Pope had just barely escaped with his life, his life being guarded by the, the, the Swiss guards at the time. Many of them died maintaining his safety. He's able to escape to Castel San Angelo in Rome and he's kind of in this fortified position with all these imperial troops running around the city. So he's in kind of a small bit of a bind. You know, he's really not in any mood to sit and listen to some king's request about marriage. Right? He's got a significant military and political problem on his hands. And oh, by the way, the troops who are running around in Rome right, are the troops of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who just happens to be the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So you could see that the Pope is really not going to be favorably disposed to hearing any kind of, of plea from Henry VIII. So he begins to drag his feet and, and you know, doesn't really promise a swift decision. But what he does promise and what he does allow is he allows Cardinal Wolseley to hold a marriage tribunal in England, to hold basically a trial to gather evidence on this marriage between Henry and Catherine, and then to submit that evidence and a recommendation to the Pope in Rome, who will then make the actual decision. Right? So he gives them the authority to hold this marriage tribunal. So Cardinal Wolseley calls forth all of the uh, bishops, there were 300 of them at the time, all of the bishops in England to meet in this marriage tribunal in England, where they're going to, in London, they're going to take the testimony of Henry and of Catherine to determine whether or not, and make a recommendation rather, whether or not this marriage um, is actually valid and legal in, uh, in the eyes of the church. So every bishop shows up, right? Henry comes, he gives his testimony. Catherine comes, she gives her testimony. It's interesting, towards the, as these proceedings went on, it was quite clear that every single bishop in England supported the, the king's contention that his marriage was not valid. There was only one out of 300 bishops that sided with Catherine and in defense of the bond. And that one bishop was St. John Fisher of Rochester, and we'll talk about him a little bit more. Catherine sees where this is going, and she sees how things politically are lining up. She's very upset, so she writes a heartfelt plea and a letter to the Pope, basically telling him, this is what's happening, here's my side of the story, I'm not really getting justice here, you know, you need to understand the full facts to make an, an authentic decision. As a result of her letter, Clement VII sends a letter back to Wolseley, getting rid of the tribunal, dismantling it, saying, okay, we're done here. You send me what you have, 
And when I have time and when I want to make a decision, I'll make a decision on the bond. As a result of the dissolution of the marriage tribunal, this causes Cardinal Wolseley's downfall in England. He's actually stripped of his secular position as Lord Chancellor of England. Instead, it's given to a man whom we'll all hear about in a moment, and we all know, Thomas More. He becomes Lord Chancellor of England at this time. And so Wolseley then just kind of fades off into the distance and ultimately um, dies. Now, what happens during this time is there's a man who is kind of Prime Minister of Parliament, or is Prime Minister of Parliament, comes to the king with a suggestion, and his name is Thomas Cromwell. And Thomas Cromwell comes to the king, and he says, you know, Henry, you're king, and you, you're pretty much in charge of everything in England, right? Henry's like, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, well, there's one thing you're not in charge of, and that's the church. He's like, yeah, that's true. He said, well, if you were in charge of the church, then you could appoint a churchman who would be able to grant you the decision that you want, couldn't you? And Henry says, wow, that's a, that's a fantastic and intriguing idea, Cromwell. I think we should do that. So he begins to put forth plans in order to control the clergy and control the church in England. One of the ways in which he does this, or the first way in which he does this, is he points as Archbishop of Canterbury upon the death of Cardinal Wolseley, a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer was a secret Lutheran. He was a holder of Lutheran tenets, had, been, had spent time in Germany, and had been convinced of Luther's teachings. And so he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury in 1532. Uh, shortly after his appointment, he opened his own, on his own authority, not with papal approval, a, a new marriage tribunal, another marriage tribunal to meet and to discuss and to look at the king's marriage to Catherine. Shockingly, this tribunal declared the marriage between Catherine and Henry to be null and void. Again, he did this of his own authority. He had no papal authority to do this whatsoever. As a result of that pronouncement, Henry then married Anne. Anne was then crowned Queen of England. And the people of England, especially the people in London, were very upset. Catherine was extremely popular among the people. Anne was not so popular. People were not happy at all with this decision. Ultimately, then, Anne gives birth to her, her daughter with Henry, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth will come into our story a little bit later. Eventually, Clement VII makes his decision on the marriage between, the question of the marriage between Henry and Catherine. And it takes him seven years to make his decision. So remember, things move slowly in the church. This is just another example of how that actually happens. Henry had first posed the question to the Pope in 1527. Clement VII answered the question in 1534. He answered it in defense of the bond, that the marriage between Catherine and Henry was a valid marriage in the eyes of the church. He, he ordered Henry to then take, uh, get rid of Anne, send her away, and to restore his relationship with Catherine, which Henry refused to do. In response to the Pope's uh, decision. Henry then called Parliament to meet in the year 1534, and Parliament during this 1534 session passed two specific acts which placed England on the path of schism from the Catholic Church. And this first act that he has Parliament pass is the Act of Secession here in April of 1534. And this Act of Secession declared that Elizabeth, would, Anne's daughter, and Henry's daughter, would be is the legitimate heir to the throne of England. So basically putting aside Mary Tudor, Catherine, and Henry's daughter. And it required people to take, the subjects of England, to be liable to take an oath saying that they agreed and believed in that, uh, that reign of secession, or that uh, uh, secession. The next act that Parliament passed was the Act of Supremacy in November of 1534. This one actually declared that the king is the supreme head of the church in England. 
and required another oath to be taken. Liable, all, all English subjects liable to take this oath. Failure to do so was considered a treasonous act, which was punishable by death. Now, I mentioned to you that, uh, that there was one bishop among the 300 who met when the, when the marriage tribunal first uh, came together to look at this bond between Catherine and uh, Henry, and the only bishop who actually sided with Catherine and with, in defense of the bond was St. John Fisher. St. John Fisher, as I mentioned, was Bishop of Rochester. He refused to take the oaths. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London. While he was in prison, Pope Paul III made him a car- created him a cardinal in the hopes that Henry VIII would never dare kill a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Well, when Henry heard that Paul had made John Fisher a cardinal, this is what Henry reportedly said. He said, well, let the Pope send him a hat when he will. But I will so provide that whensoever it cometh, he shall wear it on his shoulders, for head he shall have none to set it on. So Henry didn't care that uh, St. John Fisher is now Cardinal Fisher. So he had John Fisher tried. He was convicted and was sentenced to death. He was executed by beheading on June 22, 1535. His head was then taken and mounted on a spike on London Bridge and left there for two weeks. Uh, as an example to others. Eventually, it was taken off and thrown into the Thames. Now, St. Thomas More, as we mentioned, was Lord Chancellor of England for a time, and then as he, began to, as he saw the king began to begin to take measures to control the church in England, he resigned his position as Lord Chancellor. But he was a fantastic man, as we all know, a very saintly man. Obviously, he uh, was a lawyer and a judge, a loving husband and father. He refused to take the oaths as well, was sentenced uh, was imprisoned, was arrested, put in prison in the Tower of London, where he was there for 15 months. So for over a year, he wallowed in, the, in prison in the Tower of London. Eventually, he was tried and convicted as well. He was executed on July 6, 1535. He went to the, uh, the place of execution. He took the blindfold from the executioner and tied it himself, told the crowd that he would die in the faith and for the faith of the Catholic Church, being the king's good servant, but God's first. And I know we're all familiar with the movie A Man for All Seasons, fantastic film. Uh, it tells the story of St. Thomas More and what's going on in England during this period of time. I know there's, there's different versions of it, but the original one, with Paul Schofield as, as uh, St. Thomas More, is fantastic. So at this point, so if you haven't seen that, I suggest that you, you uh, actually watch that. Wonderful. Um, there's, uh, obviously, there's Hollywood liberal, you know, uh, liberalities taken in it. It's not necessarily completely historically accurate, but it's, there's, there's dramatization, but it's very, very good. Now, at this point in time, the English church is in schism, right? Because the, what the English king, Henry VIII, has done is he's declared that he is the head of the church in England, not the pope. So the English church is in schism. They've, they've failed to recognize the authority of the pope over the church in England. They're not yet in heresy. That will happen as a result of Henry's successor, his son, Edward VI, we'll talk about in a moment. So this comes to this, takes us to the end of our time period of protesters and defenders, and then we move into our next time period known as the Catholic Reformation. Now, I call it the Catholic Reformation. Many of you have probably heard the term the Counter-Reformation. And I don't use that term because that term to me is not applicable, especially as we, if we understand the Protestant Revolution as the Protestant Revolution instead of the Protestant Reformation. Remember how I talked about that last week, that it really was a revolution, not a reformation. And so what happens during this period of time, from 1545 to about 1700, was the church actually and authentically reformed herself. And we'll touch on that tonight, on how she did that. And so that, this period of time was when the church actually did reform herself. It wasn't a counter-reformation, because to use that phrase makes it seem as if what came before it, the Protestant Reformation, was an authentic reformation. 
or at least was some attempt at reform. And as I mentioned last week, there was really no attempt at reform. It was a pure, all, pure and old, um, all-out revolution. So what happens here again is an authentic reformation. Now, how does this come about? Actually, the church reforms herself. I know in, in the entertainment industry today and in movies, right, the, uh, the big thing is to see a movie in 3D. Well, the church during this period of time reformed her, herself in 3D. And this is how she did it. What I mean by that is that she focused on three areas of her life. And there are three D's. The first D is doctrine. So the church decided that we needed to look at doctrine and we needed to represent the teachings of the church in response to these Protestant heresies. Not obviously change the teaching of the church, but represent it, re-teach it in essence. Right. So the first D is doctrine. Second D is devotion. There was a new emphasis on Catholic devotion, on spirituality, on, a, on reforming the Mass, uh, the, the, the liturgy, so that it, the liturgy would be more uniform throughout the church. And we'll talk how that, about how that happens in a moment. So the second D is devotion. Third D is discipline. Discipline. Remember how I talked last week about all these different ecclesiastical abuses that were ongoing in the church uh, during these previous time periods we've looked at? The, the uh, abuse of pluralism, where one man would be bishop of multiple dioceses. Absenteeism, where you would have a diocese without a resident bishop. Nepotism, simony, all these different horrible abuses that were taking place during that time. The church during this period of time focuses on getting rid of those abuses by establishing certain canons and disciplines and way of life in the church. So the 3D Reformation, Catholic Reformation, doctrine, devotion, discipline. The church reforms herself uh, in 3D. And we'll talk about how she does that in more detail in a moment. But we'll finish our story here in England. Henry VIII dies in 1547. His successor is his son Edward VI, who uh, was his uh, son with his third wife, Jane Seymour. He was a very sickly boy. He was very young. He was around 16 years. He was a teenager, 16 years old or so at this time. Very, very sickly. Did not last very long. Didn't have a long reign at all. What happens during Edward VI's reign, though, even though it was brief, is that Thomas Cranmer begins to move the Church of England from schism into heresy. And he does it really in two different ways. The first way is that he reforms completely the way in which the English worshipped, how they worship God. He changed the Mass into the, the Anglican service focused on the Book of Common Prayer. And what the Book of Common Prayer does, uh, during what, what he did in the Book of Common Prayer, is he took away any notion of the liturgy as an act of sacrifice, of a re-presentation of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He gets rid of that whole sacrificial nature. It was just a participation in, in you know, remembrance. It was not an actual real act of sacrifice. He then also changes the or, what's known as the ordinal, or it's the, it was the book that's used, the rite that's used to ordain men to be uh, priests and bishops. And what he does in this, in this new ordinal that's published, this rite of ordination, is again he strips away any notion that the priesthood is, is, a, is, is that the priest rather is acts in, in persona Christi, that the priest is an, another Christ. That when he offers a sacrifice, he's offering Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So that com- whole notion of the sacrificial priesthood was taken away by Cranmer as a whole. That really the, the priest is seen as just kind of you know, the leader of the, small, of the parish, um, you know, someone to come for spiritual guidance and what have you but not someone who acts in the person of Jesus Christ when he offers the sacrifice of the Mass. And so by doing that, that really invalidates all of the orders uh, that came afterwards. So all of English, all of the, the men who are ordained to the priesthood, from that moment on, 
in the Episcopal, what we call the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church, their orders are null and void, meaning they are not authentic, real priests and the understanding that we have as Catholics of the sacrificial nature of the priesthood. This is why when you have Anglicans today who decide to, to um, kind of swim the Tiber, so to speak, and come into the Catholic Church, if they want to be priests in the Catholic Church, they have to petition their bishop, then the bishop has to determine whether or not, discern whether or not this man you know, should be ordained a Catholic priest, and then he has to go through a certain period of, of study, and then he will be ordained. Right? This is why Anglicans, Anglican priests are ordained in our, in our faith when they come to become Catholic, because their orders from this period of time in the 16th century are not authentic. They're not real. And that was because of what Edward allowed to happen by Cranmer during this period of time when he changed that whole rite of ordination. In essence, we could say that apostolic secession was broken in England during this period of time. Now, we talked about how there was one... Um, child from the marriage between Henry and Catherine, and that was Mary Tudor. And so Edward VI dies in 1553. Mary Tudor comes to the throne after a brief reign of Lady Jane Grey. But ultimately, it's, it's uh, Mary who is queen. And Mary is extremely popular among her people. But Mary had one specific and very large problem. Mary was old for the time. She was 37 years old. And she had no heir. She had no son or daughter because she wasn't married. So she had a problem. She needed to find a spouse. And so there was one man who came to her with a, with a uh, proposal and said, I can solve your problem. And why this was a problem was that if she was to die, then who would come to the throne was her half-sister Elizabeth, who had been raised a Protestant. Mary's a devout Catholic. Mary ultimately restores Catholicism to England. She saw that as her role. That's why God called her to become queen, was to restore Catholicism to England, which she does through an act of Parliament. Parliament votes to come back to the Catholic Church. So during her five-year reign, England is Catholic once again. So this problem of not having an heir was a significant one because you know, the, the thought was that Elizabeth would come to the throne and she'd take England away from the church again. and she didn't, Mary didn't want to see that happen. So this one man comes to her with a proposal and he's the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles V says, hey, I know who you could marry. You can marry my son, Philip. And so Mary decides, hey, that's a great idea. I'll marry Philip. Now, Philip ultimately becomes Philip II, king of Spain. The English people were not too excited about this because they, weren't, they didn't really want you know, someone, a foreign prince, to be their king and also king of a foreign nation. That was something that was really not uh, you know, very, uh, you know, something that the English really wanted to have happen. They were very obviously nat nationalistic and patriotic, and they didn't want uh, any foreigner to come in and, and be in you know, control of their country, so to speak, although they allowed that to happen later in their history. But anyway, so, so Philip decides to come. He accepts. This is a, obviously a marriage that's arranged politically. When he comes to England, for all intents and purposes, Mary actually really did love Philip and tried to love him and be a good wife to him. Philip had no real interest in being in England. He knew the marriage was one of political convenience. He really didn't like Mary. He hated the climate of England, which many of us probably may not blame him for that. Um, but he, you know, no, no disregard to anybody who's English. But um, he, uh, he comes to England, and it's interesting. They had a very interesting marriage because Mary... Uh, or he came and he spoke to her in Spanish, which she could understand, but she couldn't speak. And so he, she responded to him in French, which he could understand, but couldn't speak. So they had a very interesting marriage. Some might say it was a perfect marriage, but I wouldn't say that. But communication is extremely important in marriage. 
So maybe that's one of the reasons why it didn't work. But obviously, Philip didn't, uh, as I mentioned, didn't like England. There were, they had no children as a result of their union, and ultimately he does leave and returns to Spain uh, and didn't stay in England at all. But Mary should be known, although she's usually not known for this, but she should be known for the restoration of the Catholic faith in England. As I mentioned, this is what she accomplished. This is what she believed was her calling by God to be the monarch in England, was to restore England to the Catholic faith. Now, she's most known... And she's actually you know, known for one particular phrase. Whenever we hear Mary Tudor, we always think of what? Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary right. And she's always known as Bloody Mary, and which is somewhat of, of a misnomer. Um, and the reason why she's known as Bloody Mary is, is frankly, because Protestants wrote the history. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, you know, um, they ultimately succeed in England, and so they write this history, and they refer to her as Bloody Mary, because this is what she did. There were revolutionary elements and revolutionary groups in London itself that didn't like the fact that she was... Uh, on the throne, didn't like the fact that she had restored Catholicism to England. They were Protestant. They wanted to get rid of her. And so, obviously, this is a threat to not only Catholicism in England, but it's also a threat to her reign. It's a national security threat. So she had these people arrested. They were tried, convicted, and then many of them were executed. This is mostly uh, happens in London, although there's a few places outside of London. But for the most part, it happens within the confines of the city of London. And so she ultimately is known as Bloody Mary because of the arrest of these individuals um, who met, were Protestant. But again, the important point was that they were trying to overthrow her. They were actively plotting to overthrow her so that they could restore Protestantism to England. Ultimately, from, we only have one source of how many people were executed during her reign, and it's a Protestant source. It's a Protestant author that gives us the number. But he gives us a number of 273 executions during her five-year reign of Protestants who are revolutionaries trying to overthrow her government and restore Protestantism. Now, we have to contrast that with who follows Mary in, in the line of secession. Here's Philip II, and that's her half-sister Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth... We have, we, Elizabeth came to the throne. She obviously wanted to restore and did Protestantism to England and get rid of Catholicism. And one of the things that, Mary, that Elizabeth did is that we know of, in particular, over 700 documented cases of martyrdom in, during Elizabeth's reign by, for people who simply were Catholic. That's the big difference between these two women, which is hardly ever really talked about in, in, in the history textbooks, is that Mary arrested Protestants who were, who were seriously over, plotting to overthrow her and get rid of her, or kill her and get rid of her reign and restore Protestantism through violent means. They were arrested for that reason, tried, convicted, and executed. During Elizabeth's reign, it was illegal just to be Catholic. And you were arrested, and you were tortured, and you would be imprisoned, you could lose your entire life, all of your property, simply because you were Catholic. If you, if you hid a Catholic priest in your home, that was a capital offense. If you attended Catholic Mass, it was a capital offense. It was seen as a treasonous act against the throne. One way to put this is Elizabeth restored state-sponsored persecution of the Catholic Church in Europe. The first time that it happened since the Roman Empire. All right? A significant difference in how these women approached their reigns. Now, were there Catholics in England that plotted to overthrow Elizabeth? Yes. There were. Was every Catholic in England doing this? Absolutely not. Was every Catholic arrest, who was arrested and martyred for the faith plotting to overthrow her reign? Frankly, abs no, absolutely not at all. And well, I'll give you one example or two examples here in a moment. So we have over 700, and there's even more than that, but we have 700 very clear, very well-documented cases of martyrdom during Elizabeth's reign. You contrast that with the 273 uh, under Mary's reign. Who should really be given the title of bloody? 
Right? But again, as I mentioned earlier, I think, um, when we started, if not now, during this session, during this series, then at least when we met uh, in the spring, that, you know, our history, and especially in this country, has been presented through a Protestant lens. And so this is why Mary's always known as Bloody Mary, and her whole efforts to restore the church peacefully in, in England is hardly ever talked about in history textbooks, and how many of the times you can read an entire book on Elizabeth and never read anything about her persecution of the church. You know, we even have movies made of, of Elizabeth, with Kate Blanchett that show her as this great and wonderful monarch who brought England into this, you know, time of prosperity and wealth, and she was just this fantastically, wonderfully enlightened modern woman, uh, and all that is historical rubbish. It's not true at all. It's very, very interesting. But again, it all depends on who ends up writing our history. But we need to know our history and know our identity as Catholics so we can teach it most specifically to our children. A couple of martyrs during this time period and during Elizabeth's reign. One is St. Edmund Campion. He was a Jesuit who fled from England and studied for the priesthood on the continent. Then he came back and ministered to the underground Catholics in England. When he arrived in England, he actually wrote a little pamphlet defending the faith and, and uh, uh, kind of an, a work, an apologetic work, so to speak. It was known as Campion's Brag. He was um, betrayed. And he was in hiding. He was betrayed, captured. He was tortured horribly during his imprisonment. He was racked, was, you know, had himself stretched, basically. He had his fingernails ripped off. He was uh, horribly treated. He was tried. The jury was actually bribed to ensure his conviction. So he was convicted, ultimately. He was hanged, drawn, and quartered, was the way that he met uh, our Lord. Now, if you want to know what being hanged, drawn, and quartered is like, watch the last scenes of the movie Braveheart. So I'm not going to describe it because it's pretty horrific. But if you want to know what, that, what it's like to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, they illustrate that or show at least the hanging and the, uh, the uh, drawing aspect of it. They don't show the quartering. But, so you get a sense in that last uh, uh, part of that movie what, what that was, would have been like. Another martyr during this period of time, during Elizabethan England, was St. Margaret Clitheroe. St. Margaret was a 30-year-old housewife, uh, mother, who had converted to the faith. Her husband remained a Protestant. Her crime was that she hid Catholic priests in her home. That was her only crime. Well, and she attended Mass, too. She attended Catholic Mass, and she hid Catholic priests in her home. She was found out. She was arrested by the authorities, brought before the judge. She was ordered or, you know, to plead in the case. She refused to plead. She refused to enter any form of plea because she didn't even recognize the authority of the judge you know, to, to try her in this type of a matter. So she was found guilty. She was then sentenced to death, and how the English executed her was to lay her on the ground and tie her arms and her feet to, different, to stakes, so she was flat out on the ground on her back. They placed a wooden kind of platform like a tabletop on her body, and then they put rocks and weights on her body slowly over the course of a day so that she was suffocated to death. This is how you uh, met your end if you were a Catholic in Elizabethan England. She did, though, was a woman of Im immense faith and passed on her faith and her love for Christ and the church to her children because her two sons became priests and her daughter became a nun. So these were, this is a woman of, of immense faith, and she shared that faith and gave that faith and handed that faith on to her children, even during the, the time of immense suffering that she went through. But she ultimately met her reward uh, to be with our Lord in heaven. Now, how the church reformed herself, I mentioned earlier, was through doctrine, devotion, and discipline. The church reformed herself in 3D. And how most of this comes about is through the calling of an ecumenical council during this period of time, the Council of Trent, one of the most important councils in the history of the church. It was called by Paul III, 
It really laid the foundation for the Catholic Reformation. And the purpose of this council was to do two things. It was one, it was to define authentic Catholic doctrine in response to the Protestant heresies. Now again, there's no new teachings here in Trent. This is just a representation of and a reaffirmation of Catholic doctrine from apostolic times. And this was important because there had been no theological statement from Rome on Protestant teachings since Leo X's bull against Luther, Exerge Domini, in 1520, which we talked about last time. Right? So there had been no theological pronouncement in 25 years or so. It was, so the, it was the world needed, a, a very, and the church needed, a very clear, very strong um, uh, promulgation of teaching by the church. And this is what the, uh, the Council Fathers of Trent brought to the church. Now, it's interesting, when you read the decrees of the Council of Trent, and you see that they represent Catholic teaching and reaffirm Catholic teaching, especially in response to these Protestant heresies, you won't read Luther's name. You'll never see Luther's names in any, name or, or Calvin's name in any of, the, any of the documents of the Council of Trent. That's because the church decided to obviously attack the doctrine, attack their teachings, not the individual. Right? This is the whole thing from Christ, that we love the sinner, hate the sin. This is manifested here for us in the teachings of the council. So it was an act of great charity. That, you know, it was not a, an attack on specific people, but rather an attack on their wrong and erroneous doctrine. The second reason why the Council of Trent was called was to obviously reform the church, or to reform the life of the church. And she did so, the council did so, through the issuance of dis, different disciplined canons, you know, getting, way of, getting rid of these different ecclesiastical abuses, you know, legislating them out, saying this is no longer acceptable in the church. Now, the Council of Trent met, if you look at the years, it met from 1545 to 1563. So that's 18 years. That makes it look like that was an extremely long council. Remember, things move slowly in the church. But what, what really, it doesn't mean that the Council Fathers met for 18 solid years and they, they were just hammering out all this stuff and it took them a long time to do it. Why it met over 18 years was actually because it had to be stopped. It was interrupted twice during the, during the course of its um, meetings. Once because a, a plague, the plague broke out in the city of Trent and uh, there were some health considerations and, and one of the uh, council fathers got sick, so, they, so the Pope suspended the council. And then there was another time where there was a Protestant army that was really close to the city and looked like they might march on the city and capture the, all of the cardinals and bishops assembled, and so the Pope suspended the council again. So there was a period in that time it was suspended for 10 years. So although it looks like the council met for a long period of time, it really didn't meet over that long period of time. It just took 18 years for the work to finally be completed because of those two different uh, suspensions. But the Council of Trent ultimately produced 16 different dogmatic, uh, dogmatic documents, uh, decrees, teaching, on, you know, reaffirming Catholic doctrine, issuing different uh, disciplines and different canons so that we could clear up all these different abuses in the church. And it was, that's more than all the previous councils combined. So it was a huge body of work that came out of this council. The church really was focused on reforming herself during this council. Now, if you study councils in the history of the church, you know that all the decrees coming from a council are, are fine and wonderful and great. But unless those decrees are actually implemented, unless they're actually enfleshed, really, in the life of the church, they really don't become permanent, and nothing really comes from them. There have been councils that have met before this that actually tried to reform the church uh, that didn't really succeed because they weren't implemented. And so what usually happens is that it takes a really strong pope to come along for the Holy Spirit to give the church a really strong pope to then implement the decrees of a council. And the really strong pope that the Holy Spirit gave to the church at this time that implemented the decrees from the Council of Trent is the great pope, Pope St. Pius V. 
St. Pius V is the man who really implements all of these decrees from the Council of Trent. And he does two things that are really important I just want to focus on. One is that in 1566, he promulgates a catechism. That was one of the things that the Council Fathers had called for, was a universal catechism to be compiled of church teaching so that it could be used in, in uh, teaching the faith to others and in defending the faith against Protestant heretics. And so he issued this and promulgated, published this, new cate- this universal catechism for the church. First time that it happened in the history of the church. There's only been two universal catechisms in the whole history of the church. The one here from the Council of Trent and the one that we all are familiar with, the, the current modern day catechism of the ca- Catholic Church, which our late Holy Father John Paul II promulgated. Those are the only two. Now some of you know of the Baltimore Catechism and whatnot. The Baltimore Catechism was not a universal catechism, not, not to be used for the whole church. It was written by the American bishops for the church here in the United States to be used here. It wasn't to be used universally. Right? There's only two in the history of the church. And he wrote that, he published that catechism again. So it would be used to teach the faith throughout Europe and to defend the faith against these different uh, heresies. The other thing that St. Pius V did was in 1570, he issued forth a revision of the Roman Missal, or a way in which the church celebrates Mass. What he did principally was that he, he made kind of uniform the celebration of, of Mass throughout the church. Right, there, before this time, there had been different ways in which Mass had been celebrated, different uh, uh, ways of liturgy and worship, and what he did was he kind of organized that. There, he allowed for some exceptions for other ways to continue, other rites to continue within the church. But he really wanted, especially in the western part of the church, for a Mass to be celebrated in a uniform type of way. And this is a Mass that's still in existence today. This liturgy is still in existence today. Many of us know of it kind of commonly as the Tridentine Mass, uh, the extraordinary form of the Mass. The Tridentine Mass, the Tridentine name is really kind of a misnomer. But it is the Missal of uh, St. Pius V. It's been revised over the years leading up into John the Twenty-Third. I think, revised a part of it, maybe even Paul VI. And so that was the way that in which the Church celebrated Mass in the western half of the world until the Reform decrees from the Second Vatican Council when we had the Norvus Ordo, which is the most common way we celebrate Mass today. So he had St. Pius V, this fantastic priest or pope, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in a moment in, an, in another historical event, who ushers forth these great reforms during this period of time to really implement the decrees of the Council of Trent. Now, another way in which the church reforms herself is through the, through the creation of a new religious order, a really unique and brand new religious order that the Holy Spirit brings to the church, and this is the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. And they come about from St. Ignatius of Loyola and several other of his companions formed this order in the year 1534. And St. Ignatius had as his, the goals for this order was to obviously reform the church, help in the reform of the church, assist the church in that, especially through calling the people to participate frequently in the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist. And also he wanted his, his, uh, his Jesuits, his companions, to be catechists, to be educated to go and to teach the faith to others. And obviously, so, so doing, not only to teach Catholics the faith, but also to fight against heresies, to defend the faith from those who would attack it. And he also wanted his Jesuits to be missionaries, to be at the, basically the beck and call of the Holy Father and to be able to go and to be sent wherever he wanted them to be sent. And so we have during this period of time this fantastically wonderful men who missioned throughout the entire world. Uh, so we have people like St. Francis Xavier, who was one of those who founded the order with St. Ignatius. St. Francis ultimately goes on missions in India, and he missions in Japan, and he dies off the coast of China. 
I mean, it's one of those you know, events in the history of the church that we stop and think about, that if St. Francis Xavier, if it had been part of God's plan for him to actually establish uh, you know, a foothold in China and to spread the faith in China, how different that country would be today. Right? I mean, how different the world's history would be, ultimately. Um, you know, there are Catholics, obviously, in China today. The authentic faith is underground. There's a state-sponsored church, which is not authentic. But how different that whole country would be had St. Francis Xavier been able to actually uh, go forth and mission actively in that country. We have here, too, I, on your slides, I have St. Pa- Peter Canisius. St. Peter is known as the second apostle of Germany. Anybody know who the first apostle of Germany is? Yeah, St. Boniface, exactly. So St. Boniface in the 8th century was the first apostle of Germany. The second apostle of Germany is St. Peter Canisius. And St. Peter went, especially into the northern part of Germany, which was heavily and predominantly Lutheran, and he went and he ministered to these Lutherans and tried to bring them back to the faith. And he did that through teaching and through even the writing of a small little local catechism that he used. He's, no, he's a doctor of the church. He's known as the doctor uh, of the catechism because he wrote his own little catechism to use and be able to teach and help these Lutheran, German Lutherans come back to the faith. We have other fantastic saints during this period of time, too, which also contributed to the reform of the church, especially in the spiritual life. We have uh, such luminaries as St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, who reformed the, the uh, Carmelite order and really brought forth this new fervor of worship and of devotion of spirituality and mysticism in the church. We have even uh, St. Francis de Sales, for example, another fantastic priest who, and bishop who missioned to Calvin, Calvinists in the area of Geneva, bringing them back into the faith. And we have fantastic missionaries, too, like St. Uh, Isaac Jogues and St. Jean de Berbeuf, these uh, French Jesuits who come to what is now upstate New York, and modern-day Quebec in Canada, and mission to the, the uh, Huron Indians there, uh, and met martyrdom as a result of their efforts. And just as a sidebar, if you ever have the opportunity, if you're in upstate New York, I highly encourage you to, to get on the thruway and go to a little town called Orysville, New York. It's just right before you get to Utica. It's in the Mohawk Valley in New York. It's exceptionally beautiful, first of all, um, that area of the country. But go to the Shrine of the North American Martyrs. It's in Orysville, New York, Shrine of the North American Martyrs, huge church there, you can go and walk around this church in, the, in this um, ruins of this, this um, old Indian village. And it was in this village that St. Isaac Jogues was martyred for the faith. Uh, and it's one of the few places in North America you can go and stand on ground where men actually gave their lives for the faith. It's a fantastically wonderful, holy experience to go. My family and I went there several years ago, and we, it was a profound experience. It was, it was absolutely uh, magnificent. So if you have the opportunity, please go do so. And actually, in the same village where St. Isaac Joe's was martyred, ten years later, a saint was born, Blessed Kateri Tekawitha. So it's truly, in the same village, so truly the blood of the martyrs is a seed of Christians, and you can walk the ground where that actually happened. It's quite fascinating. So there's one last event I want to talk about in this, this time period of the Catholic Reformation, and it has to, to go back to the, the conflict between Christendom and uh, Islam, and this conflict that we've seen and we've talked about since the, since, since the rise of Islam in the 7th century. And now, at this period of time, in the 16th century, the Muslims are marauding all throughout the Mediterranean, and they're really trying, they're marshalling their fleet, and they really wanted to um, kind of conquer the Mediterranean and make it their own lake, so to speak. The Muslim ruler, the Ottoman Turkish ruler at this time, is a man by the name of Selim II. And he decided he wanted to prepare for an attack against the city of Rome. And he thought that Rome was weak, 
that the major European monarchs were all, in, were all concentrated on fighting each other rather than on being united to fight the Turkish threat. And so he thought the time was completely ripe to go and launch an invasion force against Rome. He even referred to Rome as the Red Apple because it was ripe for the plucking. So what he does is he assembles in the Gulf of Lepanto a huge, massive naval invasion force of over 300 war galleys. Now, the Pope at this time, as I mentioned earlier, is Pope St. Pius V. And he knew and heard, obviously, had intelligence reports that the Turks were preparing this great invasion force and that their, ob their objective was the city of Rome. And so he sends word out, or sends letters out, pleas out to all the major monarchs in Europe asking for, them, for their help in assembling a naval force to go and to combat this Muslim invasion force. Unfortunately, most of the major European nations ignore the Pope's plea. Uh, there's only a few that actually do respond. One is Spain. The Italian city-state of Venice responded, and then St. Pius had his own papal states and his own fleet that he could marshal together as well. So he brought together these, the naval uh, forces of these three different areas, Spain, Venice, and the papal states, and brought them forth into what's known as the Holy League. So he found this Holy League, and he placed under the command of the, uh, this Christian fleet a 24-year-old man by the name of Don Juan of Austria. Now, Don Juan is one of the most uh, interesting persons in all of church history, in all of Western civilization history. He was the illegitimate son of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. So he was the half-brother of the King of Spain at the time, Philip II. And he was a magnificent and brilliant military tactician. And we'll see that uh, in a moment, uh, what he was able to do here in uh, the Gulf of Lepanto. So we have this Muslim fleet, this Muslim invasion force, assembled in the Gulf of Lepanto, over 300 war galleys, led by the Muslim commander Ali Pasha. He had over 100,000 men in his fleet. He also had 14,000 Christian slaves. Now, why would he have Christian slaves in his fleet? Well, if you think about naval warfare at this time, most of us have seen the movie Ben-Hur. So... Back in Roman times, you had these galleys that sailed the Mediterranean, and how they were powered was one of two ways, either through one sail, a mast with sails on it, or through rowers below decks, right? And this is the whole famous Ben-Hur scene where you got Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston down there rowing, got the guy with the drum, you know, ramming speed. My kids love that film, right? You love that film? It's a fantastic film. That's one of their favorite scenes, too, right? You know, ramming speed, and it's a big naval battle in the Mediterranean. Well, that was in Roman times. Not much has happened, not much has changed, rather, from then to the 16th century. So it's basically the same. The ships were bigger, but you still had these, the, you had to have rowers below decks to, you know, row these oars to propel your ship if you, had the wind, if you didn't have the wind with you. And how the Muslims pretty much got the rowers to row their ships in the Mediterranean was they went around throughout the Mediterranean marauding all these different Christian villages and cities and towns, and they would capture people, and they would enslave them and make them, chain them to the oars and make them row their ships. That's an important point to keep in mind of the story, what happens here in the battle. So as I mentioned, the Christian fleet was, was under the command of Don Juan of Austria. He had at his command a little over 200 war galleys, so he's outnumbered. There's 300 to 200. Uh, he does have throughout the fleet, though, chaplains. Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits are all scattered throughout the fleet. Uh, to minister to the Catholic sailors and soldiers. And also, every man in the fleet was given a very powerful weapon, a rosary. Every man was given a rosary in order to pray and ask Our Lady for victory in this great battle. One man in this, in this battle would become very famous much later. Uh, it's a man that we all know of. He's, his name is Miguel Cervantes. We all know Miguel Cervantes. He wrote Don Quixote. He participated in this battle. He actually was wounded in this battle, fought very bravely was wounded in the battle and lost the use of his left arm. And he actually referred to this battle later as the, the single greatest day's work of his life. His, there's his participation in this battle. He was very obviously proud of what happened. So these fleets meet 
on October 7th, 1571. So last week was the 439th anniversary of this, uh, of this battle. So they meet here in the Gulf of Lepanto. Ali Pasha had, had arranged his Muslim fleet in the shape of a crescent. Now this was not only symbolic for the Muslims, obviously, but also this is just how they usually fought on land as well as uh, on the water. In any kind of naval or land battle, they always formed their forces in the, form of, in the shape of a crescent. And they did that because their whole mode of operations was to try to encircle, outflank their enemy, encircle their enemy, and then kind of attack them from all sides. That's why they did it in the form of a uh, crescent. Now, Don Juan of Austria knew this, and knew that this, this would, how the Muslims uh, usually had this military tactic, and so he knew they were going to be in the, in the shape of a crescent. So what he decided to do was he formed his forces into the shape of a cross. So literally, on October 7th, 1571, the Battle of Lepanto, the cross and the crescent clashed. Literally. And I'll tell you a minute why he decided to do that. Ultimately, this was a huge Christian victory. Don Juan of Austria and his fleet was able to destroy or capture over 200 Turkish war galleys. It was estimated there were 30,000 Turkish casualties as a result of this battle. The Christians lost 12 ships. 12. 300 captured, or 200 captured and destroyed Turkish ships. 12 Christian vessels destroyed. Now, how was he able to, how were we able to achieve such a great victory. Well, Don Juan of Austria had two very special secret weapons in his employ, one of which was of his own creation, and those were he outfitted six of, these, of his war galleys with side-mounted cannon instead of forward-mounted cannon. Previous to this, these galleys in the Mediterranean had cannon, but they were all bow-mounted. So what he decided to do was he put on six of these ships, he had them uh, mounted on the sides. And so what he did was he took those six ships, the specially outfitted ships, and he put them in the, in the transept of the cross. So they're all facing this way as the Muslim fleet comes at them. And what happens is the Muslim fleet came within range, these six specially outfitted ships with the side-mounted cannon, so you could put a lot more cannon on them than if they were in the bow, you know, unleash this magnificent volley which decimated a good portion of the Muslim fleet right at the very beginning of the battle. He really changed naval warfare as a result of putting in these side-mounted cannons. It's never been done before. And pretty much that would be the way that all naval vessels were outfitted um, from that, this point on, would be with side-mounted cannon. The other thing that he did was he had a very special weapon that had been sent to him um, from the Archbishop of Mexico City. And what had been sent to him was the Archbishop of Mexico City knew that there was this great battle that was going to take place. And so he had a, a reproduction of Our Lady of Guadalupe painted. And he had this reproduction then touched to the actual tilma, and he had that sent to the king of Spain, Philip II. And Philip II gave that reproduction, which had been touched to the original, to his main um, commander, the commander of the, kind of the Spanish contingent of this Christian fleet, uh, a man by the name of Admiral Doria. So he gave this re reproduction of the Our Lady of Guadalupe to Admiral Doria on his ship as a, as a sign and hope that Our Lady would protect the, the Christians and that they would have this great and wonderful victory. Well, during this battle... As I mentioned, one way in which the, usually how things worked in, in, battle with, in naval battles at this time was that these war galleys, in order to kind of defeat the other fleet, you had to bring your galley up next to the other galley, and you would throw grappling hooks across, and you'd lash the ships together, and then men would jump over sides, and you'd, you'd fight it out hand-to-hand -hand in order to see who would take over which ship. So if you have all of your rowers below decks, and they're rowing, right, to propel your ship, you have less men above deck to then fight when you do catch up to an enemy vessel, right? So if you have the wind against you, you have to have your rowers down below deck. If you have the wind in your favor, you can unleash your sails 
and then unleash your un, uh, shackle your rowers from below decks and put them on deck, give them weapons, and they can fight. So you'll have more numbers, you'll be more successful in conquering your enemy. Well, the prevailing winds of the Mediterranean always go in one direction. Right? And so at this time, the Christian fleet was going against the wind. So they always had to have their rowers below deck during the battle. But at one crucial moment in the battle, when it looked like one element of the Turkish fleet was going to completely destroy one side or one flank of the Christian fleet and then be able to come in and get the rest of the fleet, this was right where Admiral Doria's flagship was, the wind at that moment in the battle miraculously changed. So it allowed Admiral Doria then to unleash his sails, bring his rowers up from below deck, and it made the Turks then take their rowers and put them below decks so that they could continue to maneuver their ships. And it happened right in this spot where Admiral Doria's flagship was with, with a picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So as a result of Our Lady's intercession, the Christian fleet won this magnificent battle and victory. As a result of it, St. Pius V ordered this date, October 7th, to be commemorated as initially our, as a feast of Our Lady of Victory as he attributed, obviously, to Our Lady's intercession for this victory. Then a year later, it was actually changed to, Our Lady, to the Feast of Our Lady of the Most Holy Rosary, which is the feast we still celebrate today, which is the feast we celebrated last week. If you want to know why we celebrate that feast, it's because of Our Lady's intercession at this great battle of Lepanto, saving, really, Rome and Christendom from an Ottoman Turkish invasion force. Now, if you've never read T.J. Kesterton's poem, Lepanto, I highly encourage you to do so. He wrote a poem commemorating the victory of Lepanto you know, many years ago. And you can get it, uh, this book through Ignatius Press. It's a fantastic little poem. It's not very long. And this book has a couple of other different stories and chapters in the back that give you more historical background and military background to the, to the event itself. I highly encourage you to do so. It's a fantastic, wonderful poem. I mean, Chesterton's a great writer, obviously. Um, this poem is fantastic. I'll pass it around if you want to look at it. Um, we have a tradition in our family that every October 7th, I read the poem, Chesterton's poem of Lepanto, to my children so, so that they have a sense of our identity as Catholics and of this great event, and they know why we celebrate this particular feast. And you like that poem, right, Therese? Yes. <laughs> She's a fantastic student. So our time period here, the Catholic Reformation, comes to an end. The Church has reformed herself through the 3D, in 3D, devotion, doctrine, and discipline. The Church has obviously seen great leaders during this period of time, holy saints. So really, it's a very interesting and good time in the history of the Church. And it's, it's, it's actually providential that the Church was able to reform herself at this time, because coming into the, the 18th, 17th and 18th century, a church will really see and be faced with a great, great difficulty. Uh, and that's the period of time of revolutions and modernism. All right, well, let me just talk briefly about this, and we'll, we'll continue this time period next week. But revolutions and modernism from the year 1700 to about 1913 or so. And what happens during this period of time is Europe is moving away from her roots. She's really moving away from her Christian roots. And how she does that is really through um, a political revolution, but also through an intellectual revolution. There's something that profoundly happens during this period of time that fundamentally changes the, the science of philosophy. And by changing the science of philosophy, it changes the understanding of learning, and it changes the worldview that people have. If we want to know why we deal with so many of the things we deal with in our society today, like secularism, like moral relativism, these all stem from this period of time here, revolutions and modernism. And what I'm talking about is this is the period of time of the Enlightenment, where we have a change in philosophy and a change in worldview, where Europe is moving away from being an age of faith, to being an age of reason, right? And it's a focus, it's basically society moving away from being God-centered and moving more towards man-centered. 
Right? And how this happens is really through this change in philosophy. And the understanding really is this, is that in Catholic understanding of philosophy, is that philosophy is the second highest science outside of theology. It's a science that should be studied, obviously, along with theology. But Catholic philosophy has a very specific method of how you approach questions and how you answer questions in Catholic philosophy. It's reason based on observation. We reason to certain positions based on our observation of the created world. So philosophy from a Catholic perspective is based in reality. Right? We have to observe reality, and from observed reality, from created reality, we can then draw certain philosophical principles and come to an understanding of the truth. Right? So it's, it's the, reason, the method is reason based on observation. Now the modern position during this time seeks to, in which we're still dealing with, seeks to change philosophy. Instead, the modern position wants to remake philosophy into a science that is expressible in mathematical ways. Modern philosophers think that theology and philosophy are not compatible, that faith and reason are not compatible, that they must be separated, that they're two separate things uh, to look at. And so what happens during this time is that philosophy begins to be divorced from reality. And this is why you have certain, certain questions that are asked that are just not, kind of silly. Right? I mean, many of us who have taken philosophy courses as undergrads or grad school or even in high school, you know, those philosophy courses and those professors and teachers, they ask questions like, why is the sky blue? Is it blue? What is blue? Do you think it's blue? I think it's green. How do you know? You know, anybody have those kind of questions in your class? Just silly questions that have no basis in reality, right? Why? You ever think why, why they're asking these questions? Because philosophy during this time is moved away. It's divorced from reality. And really the one who brings this about, although he didn't necessarily intend to do it that way, but it was what happened, is obviously the father of modern philosophy, René Descartes. Now during Descartes' time, philosophers were, were really preoccupied with knowledge. The question of the day was, was knowledge. And specifically the question was, how do we know we know anything? Right? How do we know we know anything? Everything was based on knowledge. Everybody was asking questions about knowledge. You could see, though, that if you keep asking the question, how do we know we know anything, the ultimate extension of that is going to be skepticism. You're ultimately going to come to an understanding that well, we can't really know anything. Right? So everything is in doubt. There's nothing that's certain. So Descartes comes to this debate, and he decides, I, we need to find a way to make something certain. And one, thing that we, one question that people were asking at the time was, how do we know we exist? Right? How do we know we're here? How do we know this isn't just some kind of you know, false projection? How do we know we're really here? So what Descartes said was, okay, if, if we're preoccupied with knowledge, and we're asking the question, how do we know we know anything? And, and, and the answer is, we don't really know anything. So everything is in doubt. Then if everything's in doubt, there's only one certain thing that exists. And the one certain thing that exists is that we're doubting. So if we're doubting, then something must be happening. We're thinking. And if we're thinking, we must exist. So he comes up with this whole cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Right? If everything's in doubt, nothing is certain, there's only one thing that is really certain, and that's we're doubting. And if we're doubting, we're thinking, if we're thinking, we're alive, therefore we exist. Now, I mean, this is kind of silly, right? I mean, that's, that's this modern understanding of philosophy that divorces you know, thinking from reality. How do we know we exist? Because uh, I'm breathing, I'm seeing, I'm thinking, I'm touching stuff, right? This is all based on reality. I know that I exist because I'm here, right? I don't need to have this all, you know, up in my head. And so what happens, again, as a result of that, it leads to skepticism, it leads to moral relativism, it leads to these kind of crazy questions that, that people ask uh, in our own day and age, and that they asked even in this period of time. It divorces our thinking and our worldview from the created reality that God has given to us. 
And that's why we have all these problems that we have today, uh, or many of the, one of the reasons why we have some of the problems we have today. I would encourage you all, um, and I'll stop here, but I'll encourage you all, if you've never read John Paul II's book, Memory and Identity, it's the last book that he was published um, in his pontificate. It was published the year that he died. It's called Memory and Identity. And it's not like one of his uh, encyclicals where you read it and you read it and you read it and you go, what, what did he say? Because, um, you know, he's a, very, he's a brilliant man, obviously, but, you know, he wrote in a certain way. It's very difficult uh, at times to understand what, what he's really getting at. Um, and you have to really, you know, wrestle with the material and kind of unpack it. But this, this is actually a book where he had conversations with journalists. And so the journalists gave him, asked him questions, he responded, they wrote the answers down, and they formed it into a book. And his book, Memory and Identity, is basically his um, opinion of, of modern European history, of what happened in Europe as a result of the Enlightenment, what happened in Europe as a result of Descartes' philosophy, what happened in Europe as a result of the embracing of these enlightened ideals. So he helps to answer the question, why did the Holocaust come about? Why did Europe engage in two horrific world wars? And he lays the answer at the feet of this, these really ungodly um, way of looking at philosophy and looking at the world. It's a fantastic work, so I encourage you to look at that. So next week when we meet up, we'll finish our time and we'll get into the 20th century and we'll uh, talk about the French Revolution as being the climax of the Enlightenment and then we'll look at what happens to Europe during those two world wars and specifically the church and we'll finish up with the pontificate of Benedict XVI. So thank you. Thank you, Steve. We'll take a quick three-minute break for those that can stay around, and we'll come back for three minutes or four minutes of Q&A. God bless you. Just curious, why did the Enlightenment, why did um, modern philosophy come about at that particular point in time? Why did it come about at that particular point in time? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, it's, um, you know, philosophy was, was always associated with, you know, the, the study of philosophy was always associated with the church, with the universities, and things like that. And then at this period of time, you see the, the rise and growth of the beginnings of nation states. And so you see more absolutist-type kings and what have you. And so they begin to exercise or desire to exercise more of a control over certain institutions which influence societal life, like the educational system. And so you begin to see, you know, uh, more secular universities arise, um, and they obviously are not necessarily going to cheat. They're going to teach. They're going to be more freewheeling in what they're what they are allowed to teach and what have you. Um, and I think it's just a natural. That's one part of it. I think the other part is just a natural progression in, in theology or in philosophy in terms of, of um, you know, over time, different philosophers asking different questions, which you know were divorced from reality and divorced from theology. And it just I think it culminates over that period of that progression at this period of time. So and it's, it's just that's I mean, there's, there's a whole history of philosophy that's that's even, you know, more extensive than obviously what we got into tonight. We're gonna, and we're going to be getting into that in the, uh, well, spring and, and early <laughs> summer of 2011. Yeah. Um, and that's an excellent question. I'm sitting here as a as a philosophy minor myself thinking about it. So it's, it's a good question, something we're going to be covering. Absolutely. I believe it's uh, Belloc who talks about the um, revolt or the Protestant revolution as a revolt of the merchants against the landed aristocracy. Can you elaborate on some of the less pious um, reasons for the Protestant revolt? 
Yeah, there were there. Were, I mean, it's, that's a very good point. Belloc makes he makes that extensive point when he talks about how the Reformation happened in that book, and uh, even to a certain extent in the Great Heresies. But yeah, I mean, there was there was a certain economic aspect to the Protestant Revolution as well. I mean, there were many people landed gentry and uh, you know minor nobility and either even major nobility who um, definitely uh, greatly benefited economically from a revolt from the church. Uh, in England, one thing I didn't mention due to time, but at the, what, what uh, Henry did after he made himself the head of the church is that he dissolved all the monasteries throughout England. So there's all the monasteries went away. And the reason why he did that was because monasteries owned extensive land, had extensive land holdings. And so he dissolved them to be, and went in and basically took their land and then he parceled it out to his friends and to himself and to others. Because again, land is wealth. Uh, and so there was, and even in Germany, there was definitely, you know, many of the uh, Lutheran or many of the princes who ended up supporting Luther did so, um, not necessarily so much as from a spiritual perspective, although there was that, but uh, from an economic perspective. That, you know, their eyes got big when they saw that if they could get rid of the church, they could take the church lands and they would be wealthy. It was one of the reasons why it was so hard for England to come back to the faith, was because many of the nobility uh, and minor aristocracy did not want to give up. Uh, they didn't want to return to Catholicism, and why they were opposed to Mary's reign was because uh, to, to return to Catholicism, they thought, meant they'd have to give the land back to the church. So there was a huge emphasis to not do that. That was a great question. Were uh, any of the modernist philosophers uh, religious at one time and then you know, had some kind of an axe to grind? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Descartes was, was, um, you know, was a Catholic. I mean, and... Uh, you had um, Voltaire was Jesuit educated, so he was educated by the Jesuits, and then you know over time left the faith and went on. So yeah, I mean there were, I mean you know it, it was it would be hard at this period of time in, in church history to not have any kind of faith. I mean obviously there were those who didn't, but um, you know it's, it was still even at the time at this time it was still so much a part of European culture and life to be either associated with the Catholic faith or you know a different Protestant group. Um, it wasn't as overwhelmingly secular as what we have in our society today. I mentioned this to you briefly, but I, I think it really bears your elaborating on it, because I'm running up against my Protestant friends uh-huh. who don't believe in consubstantiation, what uh-huh. Luther felt. Right. But they don't believe in transubstantiation either, mm-hmm. and there's this the via media that it's the Eucharist is something spiritual. Uh-huh. Um, and how would you suggest I talk to these people? And I, I can think of people who are really on the edge, who are, can't quite take that final step. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how to, how to talk to them? Well, the first thing to do is you should pray for them, obviously. I mean, pray, never underestimate the power of prayer. So you need to pray for them. Um, you, you talk to them by, by going back to the, the fathers of the church. Pray for the Bishop of Egypt. Pray for the, yeah, everyone, please pray for the Bishop of Egypt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big faith question. I mean, you know, many people who struggle with, with embracing Catholicism, you know, struggle with that, Mary, saints, others, but, you know, definitely the Eucharist is a big thing. But the thing I would tell them is, is you know, look at the early church fathers. I mean, read the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch. Read the writings of, of you know, Origen. I mean, read the writings of, of you know, uh, uh, St. Justin Martyr, as another example. I mean, those, those men very specifically, clearly indicate what the early Christians believed in the Eucharist. They believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. So, so if these, if these early Christians, you know, living, you know, 100 years after Christ and, you know, 200 years after Christ, I mean, if, they, if that's what they believe and that's what was the teaching of the church that close to Jesus, then obviously that's the real teaching. So why, if a, as a Christian, why would I not want to believe in what they believed in? You know, any of the writings of the church fathers, I mean, just, you know, if, tell them to Google. 
I'll go just Google San Ignatius of Antioch and come up with all of his letters and you can read them all yeah, online. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.